the fail on podcast episode zero two zero i think failure is the inability to learn when you make mistakes you know so mistakes does not equal failure but when you do make mistakes or you stumble and there's a a delta between what you thought would happen and what actually ended up happening when you ignore that and you kind of just either blame it on something else and and call it an excuse or you don't learn from it and you just repeat it thinking that it's going to be different the next time i think that's the definition of failure Welcome to the Fail On Podcast, where we explore the hardships and obstacles today's industry leaders face on their journey to the top of their fields through careful insight and thoughtful conversation. By embracing failure, we'll show you how to build momentum without being consumed by the result. Now, please welcome your host, Rob Nunnery. Hey there, and welcome to the show that believes you are destined for more and that failing your way to an inspired life is the only way to get there. Today, we are hanging out with Dev Basu. Dev is the founder of Canada's fastest growing digital agency powered by Search. They are just stacking on award after award. They're crushing it, growing at a crazy pace. And Dev's just a brilliant marketing mind, just a really nice down-to-earth guy. And he's got the second most beautiful golden retriever on the planet behind my dog, Lucy. Sorry, Dev. But we'll be discussing how going from intrapreneur to entrepreneur is often the best way to get started in business, how he plans on scaling from $7 million in revenue currently to $28 million by 2019, and also going from 30 employees closer to probably 100. And he also shares how you should niche down when just getting started in business to go from being a generalist to really diving in and being a specialist. But first, if you'd like to stay up to date on all the Fail On podcast interviews and key takeaways from each guest, simply go to failon.com and sign up for our newsletter at the bottom of the page. That's failon.com. And you don't have to be worried about me sending you too many emails because I actually haven't sent my first newsletter yet because I'm waiting on getting a critical mass of signups before I start sending that thing out. So no sweat there. Here's Dev. Just for some context of background, you grew up in India up until basically 16 years of age with a little, I think one to four you were in the US, but then India pretty much all growing up. And you actually convinced your mom to move to Canada. So what made you even have this thought of leaving India and going to Canada at the age of 16 and, and why Canada? Yeah, very good question. So actually I grew up in, in Canada ages one to four. My parents emigrated or immigrated from India to, to Canada have a better life. I mean, it's just kind of a simple immigrant dream that so many of us really share. And when we moved back to India, it was because my grandparents had fallen sick at the time. Then it was just life in India. I went through a really dark period in my life from age 10 through about, I would say, 16. Okay. And the darkest periods was around age 12 through 13. My, my dad was diagnosed with ALS and he passed away over the period you know, it was a, it's a degenerative disease. So from 10 through 13, it was just a slow decline. And after... Neurodegenerative, right? That's oh, right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, it's also known as Lou Gregg's. And after he passed away, when I, you know, about three days before I turned 13, and I just kind of life hit me. It was like, a, a you know, running into a brick wall. And I think overnight, I went from this mental mode of being a kid to being stretched into being an adult. And so I was looking at what the options really were for my family, my mom and I at that time. And really the best option was to come back to Canada because, you know, my, my options were either continue in India as, by the way, I'm a Canadian citizen. So I was actually a foreigner in India among my own people. So that would meant, you know, being an international student at an Indian college or university. 
And I said, no, you know what? I'd rather just start our life back in Canada. And my mom was like, I have no idea how to make that happen. This was 10 plus years ago. So my dad had this little Rolodex, literally a handwritten notebook with his friends and contacts in, in Canada. And so I used to flip that open, looking at my dad's handwriting. And I'd get onto um, uh, international calling was prohibitively expensive. So I, I downloaded a soft phone on my computer and I'd call people, you know, just in being, the Rolodex. In the Rolodex. Didn't know who they were. I'm just like, hey, I'm uh, Somnath Basu's son. You probably remember from me from when I was four. I'm calling you because this is what's happened to my family. And I'm trying to figure out a way to come back home, okay, to Canada. And, you know, a lot of the phone numbers were duds. They'd be deactivated. And you're 15 at this time, just to be clear? I was 14 or 14, 15. Okay. Yeah, between sure. 14 and 15 at that so time. So you're sitting there just cold calling just random cold, people in cold Canada. Cold calling random people <laughs> in Canada until I found an uncle of mine, my, one of my dad's close friends, who was like, yeah, I totally know we've heard through the grapevine that this is what happened to your family. And absolutely, we're here to support you. So that was the process. I mean, I even called the Canadian consulate and said, this is what's happening to my family. Can you help in some way? What made the drive so so great for you to like really be pushing that hard? Did your mom yeah. have the same drive to get back to Canada? Or was it more of something you were trying no, to No, it was lead? something that I wanted. And it was, you know, choosing between two options, the known option of what life in India would be like. And my mom had been a caregiver for my dad for, you know, from... For at, that, at that point for five years. So she'd been out of work for five years and going back to the workforce was going to be difficult. And I was a kid. And part of what happens in India is that you don't really get a real job until you go through high school and then university and sometimes even a master's program before you actually go into the workforce. And I was like, that's just way too long. And it's tough to live life for four to five years when nobody's bringing in you know, any income into the family. So we're living on savings for that long. And so I was caught between this rock and a hard place. And, and that's why Canada was the only viable option at that point yep. to turn my life around. And just to kind of continue on that chronological journey. So at 16, you guys decided, okay, we're coming. So was it Toronto that you lived in from one to four as well? That's right. Yeah. Okay. So you guys picked up, moved to Toronto. Mm-hmm. And what happened from there? Well, I mean, at that point in time, I just finished grade 10 in India. And once we landed up in Toronto... We stayed with this uncle of mine for about a month, and then we moved out on our own into a little basement apartment. And did you have a job, or did your mom have a job at this point? Or not still at that savings? point. No. You know what? It was mom was. I think she got a job at a coffee shop for a little bit. She's always been in the the education industry as a as an early childhood educator, working with kids and toddlers and kids in daycares and such. And I got a job maybe about a month and a half in as a retail associate at a camera shop. And so they, that they was don't where, have those anymore, do they? <laughs> no, they don't have those anymore. But man, it was fun at Christmas selling cameras and making the most spiffs and commissions. So that's where I got my first taste of sales. Nice. So that was high school student working on the side of the, in right, the, in yeah. the camera shop. And then from there, I mean, just to get kind of more into the entrepreneurship space, what was the first time that somebody gave you money in exchange for a product or service that you actually created? It's probably, I would say, 2006 or 2007. I had just left Microsoft at the time and had embarked on this journey in learning more about SEO. You were working for Microsoft at the time? I was working for... So I switched from the the retail job into working as a marketing associate at at Microsoft, which was a completely transformative and growth experience. Was this pre-post-college, no college? No, no, in university. During school. During school. And so it was a co-op program and Microsoft invited me to join them. Got it. At that point. And I had a fantastic experience just learning so much over there. 
And something happened in Microsoft that sparked my interest in search engine optimization. And so after transitioning out of Microsoft and learning more, I had a blog where I was essentially documenting my experiences learning, building my own sort of web properties and doing a bit of affiliate marketing as well. I know you have a background in that yeah, yeah, yeah. as well. And, and that's when somebody contacted me and said, hey, can you help me build a website? And so I did. And I think the first, the first job was maybe about $1,000. But that's I, I think the, put maybe I would say ninety to a hundred hours of work in there. But how great did that feel? Oh, it felt fantastic. Right. You know, just to be able to have full control over your own destiny, right? So what based on yeah, so obviously not super scalable, ninety, ninety nope. hundred hours <laughs> for a grand. What lessons did you take from that experience to move you forward along what you'd eventually be doing? Yeah, so the the, the lesson that I took well, I mean there's so many really the first one was you need to scope before you <laughs> sure. quote. <laughs> sure. The second one was time for money is not a very good way of building a business. And the third one was when somebody comes to you with a problem, dig a little deeper because what they're coming with coming to you with is really the tip of the iceberg. It's only the problem that they can see. But there's that's usually a symptom. It's really not the problem in their business. So on your first point though is this in terms of the scope of the project, right? Yes. To quote properly. Was it because you weren't very good at what you're doing? That's why it took so long? Or was it because the scope of the project was way bigger than you had imagined? Both, actually. So, you know, I, I knew very little about actual web design. And so here I was in Notepad doing HTML. <laughs> sure. And, and then the second part of it was the project kept changing. So there was scope change and scope creep that was happening. And pretty, so, that's pretty common, right? Pretty in this common, kind of world. yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, clients do want changes and a lot of them are in the I'll know it when I see it type of mode, <laughs> which means obviously right. that you have to roll with the punches at that point in time. And so if you don't have a model where you are able to scale your billing associated with what you're actually doing and the, cha- the, the changes of the project, you're left in a lurch. Mm, sure. So after that initial thousand dollar project yeah did you continue to do more and just kind of like hone your skills like that i think i switched very quickly out of web design (laughs) into search engine optimization because i realized that at that point it really wasn't so much about building prettier or better better websites what the business owner really needed was more leads and sales exactly right and the best way of getting that to happen was to get them visibility on google which was replacing the yellow pages like no tomorrow at that point in time so you're currently founder CEO of Powered by Search. What year did that actually start? And what was kind of the segue going between doing your own thing, kind of freelancing, doing SEO, web design, to starting Powered by Search and actually building an agency? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think 2006 to 2007, I was doing the the blog and doing some of this consulting work. Affiliate stuff. Affiliate right, stuff as it. well. Built up a really good affiliate business, but then I realized that it's not something that I can build dividends on and equity There's because not, it's it not changes. A tangible asset exactly. Yeah. So ephemeral, it just changes all the time, and you're always being reactive rather than proactive. And so that's when I started building up a consulting business that you can call that a side hustle. And I was working in a variety of different companies in SEO roles. So from an SEO manager to all the way to a director of marketing for a, a Yellow Pages agency, actually. So this is the second agency at Powered by Search and I'm building up. I built one before this in that previous role. And in 2009, when I had finished my final exams at the University of Toronto, I took a business program over there. And the next day, I incorporated Powered by Search. So I went on Corporation Center or some website like that 
It was a Saturday morning and I was like, boom, let's do this. And right? at that point you had the mental mindset of this is this is going to be what I do long term. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So you had you already had mentally prepared for that. It wasn't like, oh, let's go incorporate and let's try this business out. No, no, not at all. You know, I, I had mentally sort of modeled this out going from employee to an entrepreneur. That's, that was that middle job over there where they said... That's before it was even a thing really, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just come in and build this for us, but do it on our dime. And I was like, okay, so going from entrepreneur to entrepreneur is really just a mental shift, right? You're just using your own money. You're just using than your, your own money. money. And that's really it. Everything else remains the same. And you get to reduce friction because you're in control of your own destiny and, and of your own failures as well, right? And so when I started this in 2009, it was all about go, go, go. And I mean, we didn't have to really wait very long. I mean, I started the company at my condo solarium. So most I know most Silicon Valley guys started their garage. <laughs> right. and I was in a little condo solarium looking out at the highway and in a couple of back roads over there as well. And that's how the business kind of started, all on a desk with just a laptop. Nice. And I imagine you obviously didn't have any real business experience in terms of starting your own thing at that point, right? Outside of the entrepreneur. I thought so, right? But now I've I've been on a couple of these podcasts where people ask me that question. And nobody in my entire family is an entrepreneur. I mean, they've all gone into the, the sciences and the legal field and so on. So I had to actually convince my family that I was doing okay as an entrepreneur a couple of years in. And <laughs> sure, this was sure. already scaled into seven figures of revenue. <laughs> right. But looking back at my entrepreneurial journey, I think my first business was actually in high school. And it was a business where... So I didn't have money to buy video games. And so this was back in the day when you had multiple CDs sure. for a game sure. on a PC. Yeah. You had like five discs. And so what I found was a guy who had a T1 connection, which is really fast, right? Was, he was on a corporate line. And what he was downloading was he was downloading these games from the web. And he would burn them on a disc and sell them to me at a considerable discount. This was just his side hustle sure, at that point, sure. right? So I got my supplier. And what I did next was I you would take those discs, make copies of them myself, and then sell them to my friends. So I became a, a reseller, right. essentially. Totally, yeah. And then... After that, I realized that some of my friends were doing the same thing. And I was like, no, 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 I don't want this to flood the market. <laughs> so I invested right. my, my you know, proceeds from you know, one or two sales into buying a CD-ROM burner that could do copy protection on the discs. Boy, so what awesome. I did was like, you know, five discs, one of them, one randomized one <laughs> in the sample would be copy protected. That's great. And that forced everybody else out of the market. So I could just dominate and sell to, you know, a high school that had maybe a thousand students, right? That's, that's funny because it's like... This probably isn't like something you even like thought about at the time. Not at all. And it probably yeah. so it didn't even come up to, like in your head to realize like man, I was that was actually very entrepreneurial of me back then, but the story doesn't come up until like people start asking. Yeah, exactly. And just looking back, right? Like memories I would, come back. And... I would take orders down, just handwriting them down. <laughs> and go, oh, you want the matrix? No problem. I can get you that next Friday. Right. And so I actually sold that business. No so, way. You yeah, actually sold the business? I sold the business before I left India. <laughs> That's awesome. And, and the, the sale consisted of all the, the actual ISOs for the, the games and the contact, obviously, <laughs> for the guy who was the supplier. That's fantastic. Um, I know we're probably not talking about millions of dollars, but just for some, <laughs> just for some context, how much money? Like, not even that you sold it for, but like, what were you selling these games for? Like, you know, it would probably be about ten bucks a game. Okay, yeah, yeah. ten dollars cool. a game or something like that. And did yeah. you have a lot of customers? I had lots of customers. Really? So I had friends who would refer to friends and go, like, this guy can get us the the latest games even before they're really hitting the market because that was really the the big deal was not only that they were cheaper, but I could get them faster. 
you know, in most parts of the world in Asia Pacific, you would see TV shows like we would get seasons of Friends, let's say, that were at least two or three seasons behind on TV. And so getting the power of access was huge, being able to get something early, right? And, and that's exactly what I was able to provide to these guys. And so they'd like line up and I'd have, I'd be backordered most yeah, of the yeah. time. That's <laughs> awesome. What were your biggest struggles in terms of getting power by search off the ground? How early were you making money? Did you go into it getting clients pretty quickly? Yeah, we made money from month one. I think our first month was maybe $10,000 in recurring revenue. And then it scaled very quickly up and to 50. And this is you working from your home? Yeah, 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 exactly. Gotcha. So, so no overhead, really? No overhead at that point. I think our first overhead was maybe in month three when we decided to go in and get a small space, maybe about 250 square feet. Nice, you did that early. Yeah, early enough because it was one of those things where you have to have a separation sometimes between work life and, yeah, I get and home life. I get right? that, yeah. And it's just a mental shift. I mean, it depends. Some people, it works fantastic working from home. I like having the flexibility of having both. And it also felt like it made it real and making an investment into making a small investment to having an office. Do you have anybody on the team at this point? Yeah. So I'd actually hired one more person at that point in time who had previously worked with. And then we went and hired kind of our first external employee, somebody who was not in my network Got it. by month four. Okay, so you're yeah. you're moving quick. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And you did were you pulling out money on credit cards at this point to I mean obviously you made ten K in month one. So you had were you paying yourself or were you just putting it into payroll? No, we were putting it into payroll and the company was entirely client bankrolled. So we've never had to take on any debt whatsoever, even up to now. Yeah, yeah. Cool. And I guess give me that kind of growth trajectory from year one to like that was what you said 2009 you started it yes it's like eight years in now eight years in so what was the first four years like what were the biggest struggles challenges and just getting it built out yeah so uh, so i think the the first struggle that i had was around figuring out how to get the right people on board and understanding what is the dna so what is their drive nature and acumen in terms of getting the right people on board and that lesson hit me sort of smack in my face when in the first year, I had a, a bout of appendicitis and landed up in the hospital, did the surgery, and unfortunately fell sick again. So I was in the hospital on morphine for two weeks. And in that two-week period, well, you know, I don't know if you've ever had been on morphine or no, not. No, never. I hope you don't, knock on wood. <laughs> but you're not very lucid. You know, your your mental faculties are just kind of foggy at that point in time. So I'd get on, I think, the computer every once in a while, maybe for an hour a day, just to check my email to see what, the, what was going on with the business. And I got a letter in that one of my employees was quitting. Now, if you're a company of three people, that's a third gone. <laughs> and right. she gave me only until the day, literally, that I got back. So I didn't. the two weeks is really one day of transition time. So that was a tough lesson. So it taught me about contingencies and planning and systems and the need not so much to rely on individuals, but to build entities. So rather you figure out like, what's the role that's actually required to do the work that's required. And then you figure out the person to be able to fit it into the role. And initially you're, you're doing it backwards, right? You're just, let's find this person that can do this exactly. work. Exactly. Yeah. Rather than looking at the work and finding well, I was a person. doing it completely backwards. I was doing it from a talent perspective first and going, do you have the skills? And then do you have the drive and the nature and the acumen, right? And that was something that you know, it has really hurt us, I think, over, over you know, time, I would say. It's something that I've only really shifted my mindset on halfway almost into the business. I was so focused. I mean, because what, what we do in terms of marketing is, I would say, it's 60% skill and 40% art. 
And, and so I was very skill focused going, I need people who are technically talented from a paid search perspective, from an SEO perspective, who understand psychology as well. So I, I focused on hard skills more than soft skills. And that's completely shifted in our business and it's made it so much better. So yeah, so taking us to now, what's that shift look like? I mean, is it obviously you have a, you have a beautiful office. It seems like you have a great culture, super nice people. What do you look for now when you hire versus what you looked for back then? Like, I guess what lessons did you take away? Yeah, great question. So I think that partway through, we decided to look at what are our values? You know, and so values are something that are bandied about a lot. Enron had values and look what happened to them, right? So you <laughs> right. have one of those nice values plastered on a wall and it's like integrity and honesty and et cetera, et cetera. And we said, what is our DNA, right? So even the name powered by search and how that came together it's actually pretty geeky. So back in the day, if you remember vBulletin, it was a forum software. And so most of the, the web's most popular forums were powered by this thing called vBulletin. And at the bottom of the screen, it would say powered by vBulletin. That was like their marketing, essentially, right? so that more people would find out about them. So the ethos of, of powered by search was when I started the company, it was going, what are we, what are we powered by? Because that, that forum is powered by vBulletin. We're powered by search. That's what we really do. That's in our blood, you know? So when we look at, at people today, we go, do they match with our values? And so we created something called our Vivid Vision. We have in, you know, integrated that into everything that we do. So if you apply for a role at Powered by Search today, the first thing that we do is send you a message saying, here's our Vivid Vision. Tell us what you absolutely identify with and why, and what do you not identify with and why? And that's the first filter to help us understand whether or not you know, we're attracting people who have similar values, beliefs, and goals in, in their life as well. Can you share a bit about your vivid vision for the company? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I'll share it maybe in the, the podcast notes so you can sure. actually have yeah. a look at the, the file. But it, it talks about our view over the next three years, keeping one foot in the present and one foot out into the future three years from now and looking at how the company will look, feel, and perform. So that really goes into... What are our people like? What are our clients like? What are our revenues? What's our company size? You know, if we have an office, what's the office vibe kind of like as well? This is really descriptive. And that's something that a lot of companies don't have. You know, they don't have that forward-looking vision. Or if they do, it's kind of vague or it's filled with pretty words. This is really descriptive. And it's prescriptive in the sense that we know how to get there. There's a one-year, two-year, and a three-year plan on how so to get it, there. Is it well. almost like a set of goals as well? Yeah, it, it totally is. So it talks about, you know, our revenues in, in 2019. It talks about our employee count. It talks about the characteristics of both our clients and our staff. It talks about our positioning in the industry. And so all of those are aspirational goals that we need to hit. We're breaking them down into thirds for a one, two, and a three year. So we know how we're doing each year in, you know, in hitting each one of those goals. Got it. If you don't mind sharing, obviously we can share this in the show notes as well, but what are some of those three year out goals in terms of employee count, revenue, et cetera, if right. you don't mind sharing? Yeah. So the first one from revenue, which I know a lot of people are obviously interested in is we're right now about a seven and a half million dollar business. Our goal is to grow to a $28 million business in 2019. We have broken that down into what, is, what portion of that is recurring versus what is projects as well. We have goals around employee count. Right now, we're at 30. And our Vivid Vision will probably peg us around 90 or 100 at that point in time. Part of that is a function of looking at how productive we want our staff to be. We're pretty premium in the market as well. So we have a specific type of client that we attract. We want to be preeminent in the Canadian market for sure, and then starting to get in the US market for mostly mid to large size companies. So if you're a bank or 
an insurance company, for example, and you're you're in the the mortgage industry, and you wish to acquire more customers and leads, that's where we play in that space. Got it. So, just piqued my curiosity when you said recurring versus project based revenue. What's the split right now in terms of percentage recurring versus project based? It's ninety ten. Recurring? Yeah, 90% recurring, 10% projects. Got it, got it. And what kind of, just out of curiosity, I mean, when you have a recurring client, Mm -hmm. you're just basically on a retainer, right? Just doing work as needed? Is that kind of how it looks? Yeah, so we we call it a continuous improvement program. In the way that we architect it, we have a discovery portion up front, and you can call that like a, a dating period, but it also helps us understand what the core constraints are in the business that we're you know we're we're working with and we understand what their goals are so we actually you know employ an understanding of where their reality is today what results they actually want and then we identify what roadblocks are in the middle as well and then we take those roadblocks and the roadblocks become milestones for us to achieve over the course of a year and so we put that project plan together into a roadmap and the client goes this is fantastic you've been able to prescribe my problems better than i could have you know actually articulated them myself so therefore, it seems like you have the solution for me as well. And you have a prioritized plan on what the lowest hanging food is and what the highest impact is. And you know we're going to do this over the next 12 months. So they already have all of that in front of them. And so what we do is really, you could call it many projects over the course of the, the 12 months broken up by quarter. So we have like 12-week sprints. We have a goal every quarter to hit. And we review that with our clients. And they go, seems like they, everything's on track. We're seeing the growth and the traction around this. And that all kind of is summed up into a continuous improvement program. Got it. How are you guys bringing on new clients? Like, obviously, you know, you generate leads and and customer acquisition for clients. How do you mm-hmm. guys do it internally for your, you know, to get more customers for yourself? Yeah, it's a great question. So there's a couple of different channels. Most of it is focused around being really useful in our in the terms of our content. And so we tend to be very comprehensive and teach our clients what to want, what to look for, and what to look out for in choosing a, a partner like us. And then also, what do they need to actually succeed in a channel like SEO or in paid search or, or conversion rate optimization, right? And part of that is producing content, doing things like this, obviously, to, to, to share the message. And then there's referrals. And then finally, we speak and publish as well in offline, in the offline world. So whether that's at events or we actually host our own conference as well called InboundCon. And that gives a platform for not for us to share what Powered by Search is about, but by creating a platform for industry experts to come in and bring together people who are marketing professionals and people who are marketing experts. And just by creating that platform that you know enhances our brand reputation from, from that perspective. When did you start that event? Four years ago. Got it. How, what's the size of it and scope of it now? Last year was 300 people coming out to the event. And we flew in experts from all over North America. And we had, you know, VPs of marketing, CMOs from most of the the Fortune 1000 was already represented over there. And then many funded startups as well. Awesome. And how did that event start and how has it evolved? Obviously, 300 is a good size. Did, was it just a small kind of gathering at first? Oh, like yeah. First year? The first one was on a Saturday with 100 people at a place called the Center for Social Innovation in Toronto. It wasn't even in our own office because our office was too small for that, <laughs> sure, at that point in time. Sure. But then it's really evolved since then. So we started booking out you know, theaters, essentially. And then we booked out a much bigger event venue. The CBC was the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. 
beautiful space. And so it's really kind of grown over the year. The budgets have grown. The amount of effort has really grown into it as well as more people know about the event and start both attending and speaking at it. Do you have that in your vivid vision in terms of what you want to do with it down the road? Yeah, I think where we want to go now is in 2017 and beyond is to actually niche down, or as Americans call it, niche, um, (laughs) to to, to niche down into more mastermind-style events where we can bring together a peer group that has very similar problems. Because CMOs are really dealing with a different set of problems than marketing managers really are, right? So breaking it out by track and going, what does your day-to-day struggle look like? What keeps you up at night? And then creating more workshop and mastermind-style formats to be able to help them get through a challenge, right? There's already a lot of seminars and, and conferences in the world, and people take tons and tons of notes, and they come back, and they go, I don't have any time to actually implement this. So we want to solve that problem now. I think we've already done a very good job of solving the high-quality conference problem. Now we want to do take a stab at doing the, the workshops and masterminds. Yeah. yeah, I think workshops, I know for me... And I know Jason Gaynard puts on a lot of roundtables and stuff. Mm-hmm. That stuff's way, it's way more, I guess I retain a lot more from the, that type of style versus like hearing a speaker, a big name speaker talk in front of a thousand people. Yeah. And you know what? It's part of that change really came about with a positioning exercise that we did at Powered by Search. And we were trying to create a, a framework and we succeeded with it. It's called the intent engine. And the intent engine is really focused on what you want. So when you say that, you know, a mastermind or a workshop is so much more valuable to you, it's because the content's about you and your problems and your challenges and the content itself has answers to your problems, right? It's presented in a way where it's a small format where you get to ask questions and you're heard instead of being talked at, right? And I think that's why it really works. So I do want to jump into the failure stuff. Yes. So (laughs) like I mentioned before, you, you mentioned you have a contrarian view on failure, First off, what's the core value within the company that you have around failure? When you lose, don't lose a lesson. Got it. Got it. So on that point, how do you define failure? Or what does failure mean to you? Right. So I think failure is the inability to learn when you make mistakes. You know, So mistakes does not equal failure. But when you do make mistakes or you stumble and there's a, a delta between what you thought would happen and what actually ended up happening, when you ignore that, and you kind of just either blame it on something else and, and call it an excuse, or you don't learn from it and you just repeat it, thinking that it's going to be different the next time. I think that's a definition of failure from an executional standpoint. The other type of failure is when you lose the forest for the trees. So, you know, Tony Robbins says that the ultimate failure is, you know, achievement without fulfillment, right? And so you kind of go, I have the autonomy and mastery in my life, but what the hell is the purpose, right? So that's, a, that's a, another level of failure on on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Always references Robin Williams in that respect, right? Absolutely. Because, you know, he always asks in the room, who here loves Robin Williams? Literally every hand mm-hmm. goes up in a crowd of 10,000 people. And and the guy's mastered so many different areas of acting, right? And made everybody happy but himself. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I kind of agree with that in terms of it being almost the ultimate failure. Which right. sounds bad to say about a guy who's so loved and, and passed away, but yeah, it's 100% true. So obviously failure in your eyes is not taking a lesson from it, mm-hmm. right? From doing something that didn't pan out and not learning anything. How do you... So I just actually just listened to an interview with James Altucher and right. the founder of Spanx, Sarah Blakely. And 
Both great people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. It was a great interview. But Sarah Blakely says that growing up, her dad used to ask her, like, what did you fail at today? Is that something that you ever think about like on a day-to-day basis? Not necessarily failure in the terms of not taking a lesson, but just failure in, in respect to getting outside your comfort zone per se and, and just pushing yourself a little bit more. Oh, absolutely. I think that like if you, if you don't fall down, you know, you're not pushing yourself hard enough. And the only growth comes from being outside your comfort zone, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that when you're outside of your comfort zone, it's necessary to fail though, right? There's ways to be able to get into a space where you are prepared to be outside your comfort zone and you've dry run it in your mind and you know exactly how you want it to play out. And there's a possibility that you might fail, but it doesn't mean you have to. I think that's where my contrarian view really comes in, which is there's a lot of celebration of failure today. It's being fetishized and there's a lot of failure porn where I think that the two things that kind of go into it are there's a, a survivorship bias. So it's, it's one of those like, hey, my company failed. Look at me I, and all the cool things I learned. Here's my Medium blog post. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yep. And then the flip side of it is survivorship bias as well. So, you know, most if the quotes, if you look at the quotes on failure are from really successful people. But you don't see a lot of quotes from failure from the person who started a Silicon Valley company and is now homeless. Right, exactly, right. Right. So we do celebrate the victors in, in so many ways. And so I think in hindsight, when you are very successful, you look back and you kind of go, well, of course I had to fail along the way. Now, and I think there's a, a mistake or there's a, an irresponsible correlation between you know, making mistakes equals failing. It's not really the same thing. Because if you make mistakes and you learn from it, and then you course correct and you pivot and you succeed the next time, it's not technically did you failure. really fail? Right, right. So it's just basically, in, in your eyes, it's taking, it's getting outside your comfort zone, pushing you to try something that you typically wouldn't, and then taking the lesson learned, correcting it, right, and getting better, right? Right. You don't necessarily have to succeed on the second attempt, mm-hmm. but at least get better and make progress, and then continue to do that until... Right. You're mastering exactly. until you're mastering whatever you're trying to learn. Got it. So out of all your struggles along your business journey, starting Powered by Search, running into, you know, hiring issues, all of the stuff that all entrepreneurs run into scaling a company, what if you had to pinpoint, I guess, one moment in time that makes you think like, man, I wouldn't be sitting here in this office today with all of these employees with a successful mid to high seven figure business. What would that moment be? It's a good question. I think if I didn't have the support of some very key people in the business, whether those employees or my partners, we merged with two other companies in 2014. And that was a pivotal inflection point, definitely in the business, you know. What? So this, this is something I didn't realize. So who, I guess, what brought all of that together? And what made you want to partner up at that point in time? Was the was your business struggling or were you looking... Was it a strategic move? What was the reason behind it? It was a strategic move. And one of the things that... you know, If you re- read The E-Myth and Michael Gerber talks about the technician, the manager, and the entrepreneur, my role at that point was a high-level technician and then I was the entrepreneur. But I was not a very good manager. You know, the, the maintenance or stasis of being able to just continue doing something that's working was something that I struggled with. And, and very rarely do you have one person doing all three roles really well. So I wanted to shift away from being technician to becoming more entrepreneur. 
And I wasn't able to, our team size at that point might've been something like 12 or 13 people. And so I wasn't really able to hire a leadership team or anything like that. No, not at that, at that point. point yeah. Right. And so I was managing 13 people yeah. and going. And all were directly reporting all to you? All were directly reporting up to me. And I, that was problematic because I wasn't able to spend enough time with each one of those individuals to develop them to get them to the next level. And I was spending a ton of time learning more about management styles, leadership style, and that training myself away up. from strategy and entrepreneurship. Exactly. So yeah, so I thought that you know what, let me look at who else is struggling with this. And I had two friends in the industry who are also struggling with this, but building up their own fledgling businesses and in, in the agency space. And we decided to join forces in 2014 so that each one of us could focus on different areas of the business. Right. So that was a critical inflection point in our growth going from, you know, the $2 million mark up to now nearly eight. Yep. So what were you doing in, what were you doing pre that partnership that year? And then what'd you do the year immediately after in terms of revenue? Yeah. So I think we were, we were doing about 1.8 million pre partnership and then post partnership, it shot up to, I think about 3.7, 3.8 million. Do you have any direct reports today? I do. Yeah. How many? I've got four. Gotcha. Yeah. What's the, what kind of roles are you reporting to you? Yeah. So I've got my VP of marketing and sales, our CFO, our business optimization director, and our agency ops manager reporting up to me. Got it. Got it. What's the biggest challenge in your business today in terms of like, is it, is it still the management aspect? Is that still difficult for you? No, I think it's really codifying strategy, right? So the, the big thing is we're, you know, we're focused on building systems out right now so that we can have the same level of performance and a predictable state of performance for clients. And so you're building out the playbooks, right? Part of that is being able to codify the, the actual sort of platform or thesis on how we do things. And then there's the actual game plan on this is the forest for the trees part of it. And then there's the actual trees. That's the actual playbook on how to do X, Y, or Z. And so we've been spending the last 12 months really taking those ideas, interview style, out of you know the, the strategy brains at Powered by Search and then putting that into systems so that our individual contributors can have a playbook to reference against and not necessarily be left with, hey, let's do different each single time. Because if there's something that works, just do more of it, right? Yeah, yep, sure. That's the idea. It's uh, For me, I don't, maybe I'm, I don't know. I think really simply in these terms of what you just said, if you find something that works, do more of it, right? And it's I think it's something so simple that most people don't do. Like it really resonates with me because in my past affiliate business, mm-hmm. you know, that's all I would think about is like I find one campaign that works and you just I don't I like literally I put the blinders on, I don't do anything else and I just scale that campaign until it doesn't work anymore. So I think it's also an important lesson to that a lot of entrepreneurs run into. Right. Is you start seeing a lot of different stuff. But if you find one thing that works like powered by search, right? Like you guys, you started seeing growth. You started seeing what this could be yep. and you focused and you, and you ran with it. Yeah. It's so important to not lose focus. Right. And, and there's so many shiny balls, mm, especially the, when you're just starting, right? Trying to figure oh, yeah. out what to do. Cause you're trying to figure out maybe I should do this or maybe I should do this. And you don't give it enough time to understand whether there's a product market fit over there. Or if you're helping the absolute burning problems that your clients have, instead of solving the ones that they think they need your help with. Those are the areas to really kind of double down on and dig deeper. So for somebody, let's say that there's somebody that comes to you and, you know, they want you to be their mentor. Or they, they just have a question, right? They mm-hmm. Maybe 
maybe it's an employee. They have a nine to five job, but yep. they're like, Dev, I know that I'm made for more. I know yep. that I have more potential. I want to start a business. Yes. I just have no idea where to start or what yep. action to take. What would you tell them? What would be like one directive or action item that you would say as a step one? I think the primary thing I tell them is be curious. That's something that I look for in everybody that works at Powered by Search, which is if you aren't curious about people and their problems, you can't care necessarily about them because you don't know what those problems are. And so I'd say go find the people that you naturally gravitate towards and figure out what their problems are and then figure out what might a potential solution to that problem be. The cool thing is you don't necessarily need to be an expert at providing that particular solution. In many cases, you know, businesses know what the solutions to their problems actually are. They just go, if I only had more leads, <laughs> right. or if I only had content that actually doesn't drive people away from my website, never to return again, I would actually double my business. They just don't know how to get there. Or they're too busy, or they don't have the resources, they're time-strapped, resource-strapped, and budget-strapped. And I think that if you just started to focus on one of those prongs, if you will, the, the three-part solution to that problem on how they attract, engage, and convert, you could do fantastically well, right? And the second thing I would say is niche down into one specific solution. So go from being generalist to becoming specialist. Mm. If you didn't have Powered by Search today, none of the employees, none of the revenues started from scratch again, what business would you start today? If you couldn't start this business? If I couldn't start this business at all, I would probably be in the software space where I I have a pretty good understanding of software that isn't sexy, but just works, and especially in the enterprise space. So I'd be building something in there, and I'd be building something that has longevity to it as well. So you know, some people in our Mastermind Talks community, David Hassel's built a fantastic platform with 15.5. And the need to inspire and motivate and keep track on a pulse of how your team is doing will never go away. You know, it's not quite like the the latest social media phenomenon where you're putting glasses on and taking, you know, <laughs> cute pictures of yourself. Right. So that's a fad. It might pass or it might change, right? We, you know, for, honestly, we don't even know what Facebook's going to look like in 10, 15 years. The average company, I think, the that is a Fortune 500 company now is only lasting for nine years. Whereas 50 years ago, it was like multiple oh, of yeah. that, right? Yeah, yeah. So things are changing so fast. But the, the general fundamentals of running a good business won't change. So I would focus on figuring out what those problems are that will continue to exist that require solving for growing businesses and, and start in the software space. How would you say somebody that takes what you just said, how would you recommend that they actually go figure out what those problems are? Yeah. So, you know, this is core in part to our intent engine. The first part is intent. Figure out what they want, right? And to figure out what they want, you need to have conversations. Got to talk to people. So you got to talk to people. So actually, a lot more people come to me and ask, how do I get a job at company X, Y, and Z? And it's so difficult to get into, you know, I've done the monster or, you know, the Indeed resumes and I just, I never hear it back. And I go, have you heard of this thing called LinkedIn? And they go, yeah, I kind of have a LinkedIn resume. And, and I go, okay, so you know they have a search function? Figure out who the hiring managers are at this company that you want to work for. Or figure out the team lead on, if you want to work on a marketing team, who's a marketing director, right? And then pick the channel that has the least resistance. So get yourself an in-mail or a, a premium LinkedIn subscription. If you can't invest $50 into yourself, you're not going to get the job. 
you know, snazzy up your profile, talk about your achievements, and then shoot them an email saying, hey, I just want to have coffee to understand what are the biggest things that are keeping you up at night in this company. And I'm not trying to pitch you. I don't want a job or anything. I just want to understand what the biggest struggle your, your industry is facing or your company is facing. And that's so refreshing and different than what they're so used to seeing, the three seconds they glance at a resume coming across their screen, that you're more likely to, to be heard at that point in time. So you really kind of kind of slice through the fluff and have this better signal to noise ratio. And I think entrepreneurs would, you know, essentially be doing kind of the same thing. Go to a group of people that have a similar set of problems and just talk to them and understand what is the one thing that you've been trying really hard to solve but haven't been able to. That's usually the the burning platform or the burning bridge that they need to get off of into a, a better place. Yep. It's and I was talking to Saul Orwell about this as well, and it was almost like don't stop being so lazy. Yeah, exactly. Like, don't just send a templated email yeah. to somebody that you want to talk to. Like, put like care, right? Get curious, like you said earlier. Yep. Actually, figure out who this person is and what right. interests them, and how you can actually help them and add value to their life, and then meet up. And yeah, try we, to chat. we hide too much behind our digital platforms and our screens, right? And even though it's got a nice avatar photo, and, <laughs> and you know, you've got your templated emails and things like that, I think. What we do is we optimize for efficiency when we really should be looking for effectiveness, right? Um, and That's nothing beats that than just getting together with somebody in person. Human to human interaction. Human to human and being curious and just being able to be genuinely caring, right? And that's, I think, what uh, there's a quote out there that said that people, people care more about you when you show that you care about them at the end of the day. That's what they remember at the end of the day. It's not about the snazzy solution or the great pitch or being slick. It's about whether you actually gave a shit about them. And I think, uh, I don't remember what book it's from, maybe How to Win Friends and Influence People, Dale Carnegie. But, you know, you there's always these examples of stories where somebody's at a dinner party mm-hmm. and let's say you and I are at a dinner party and I'm just asking you question after question and just because I'm actually curious and mm-hmm. interested, you know, then later on you'll go tell your friend, man, that Rob... What yeah. an amazing conversationalist. Right. And all I did was ask questions the entire time because I showed genuine interest in you. Yeah. Right? So it's it goes a long ways. And even in terms of perception to who you're talking to, they're like, oh, this guy actually cares. Because I think it's so rare nowadays that yeah. people actually dig in and have a true a real conversation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, the it, it's funny how that works because I I learned from very early on, sales is really just a transference of emotion, Right. And when you're building relationships, this is, I think, from Zig Ziglar. The biggest thing to remember is that the sweetest sound in the English language is your own name. And the second sweetest sound is you. So people are always focused on, you know, what they want to feel relevant and significant. And so anytime you can feel somebody feel relevant and significant by being curious and interested in them, you position yourself so well in whatever endeavor really that you're you're out for at that point. 100% agree. Who's had the single most profound impact in your life? In terms of somebody that was in my life, it would totally be my grandfather. When very early age, he always encouraged me that I'd you know be able to do whatever I put my mind to if I worked hard enough for it. And in terms of mentors, do, do you still keep that in mind to this day, or is oh, it yeah. just something you remember you know, as a kid? I remember it as a kid, but I keep it in my my day to day every single day because I've had friends who've asked me. You know, what would happen if you had no money and your everything was taken away from you? What would you do then? And I said, okay, so the two things that are most important to me are my willpower, okay, and and my my facility or ability to think. 
That's it. That's all I really need to be able to build back up again. Because if I have those two things and I know that I'm carrying the same lessons of, you know, persevering and understanding to love the challenge along the way. I mean, we have a common friend, Ryan Holiday, and he wrote a book called The The Obstacle is the Way. So you got to learn the, you know, that process, right? And love it. And if you kind of learn to love it, the association is no longer one of pain. It's just like, this is part of the process to be able to get from point A to point B. Do you feel like, because usually when I hear people talk about what you need to rebuild, yes. a lot of people reference network. Yes. People. Which is, I think it's curious that you didn't mention that, that you just needed, you just needed time to think, right? Yeah. So, so do you, how does network play into, I mean, do you, is that something you value? Obviously we're in the same community with Mastermind yep. Talks. So obviously, and it's not cheap. So you value community and networks. Yeah. How else do you surround yourself with people that are doing cool things and how important is that in your life? So I think the biggest thing that a community like Mastermind Talks gives me is the ability to have a a true connection with people who have similar core beliefs and values as well as goals and aspirations. But what I take away from that is not so much access, which is what a lot of people join networks for, like opening up the, the doors. For me, it's more about being able to enrich my mind and to have that growth mindset, to be able to see different perspectives, to learn from people in different industries. And I find I value that the most, my time and the things I think about, you know, are matter to me the most. So that's where I really see the value in, in networks, being able to leverage somebody else's hard work and, and, and experience and learnings and failings and everything else to be able to kind of live vicariously through them, right? That That is priceless. Right. And it's, it's actually a big part of why I'm doing this podcast, selfishly, right. is because I get to talk to, you know, one, my friends, but people that also inspire me and that are doing cool things, because it helps me grow as well. Yeah. Like when I'm having these conversations and, right. you know, I can see, you know, I've had maybe up to 10 employees, but you have quite a few more, quite a bit more. So it's, you know, it's just interesting to be able to talk to you about that kind of stuff. And yeah, so not not necessarily access per se, mm -hmm. although, you know, I think that is, that is part of it, right? Yeah, totally. Just, just because, but yeah, just purely talking to people that have gone down a path that you haven't gone down just to increase your knowledge is, right. is invaluable. I think the, the cool thing about access to opportunities with a fantastically well-integrated and healthy network isn't so much that you hit up somebody for help when you need them to. It just kind of seems to come your way. It's very serendipitous, right? And that's why we... I saw a post from maybe a common friend of ours, John Goodman, where he was talking about, you know, personal trainers talking about the theory of abundance, right, in their yeah, life. I saw this too. Yeah. And he just kind of said, hey, like, when was the last time in the last week you actually recommended somebody else within the community and said, go to this person because they can help you with X, Y, or Z? And then nobody raised their hand up, obviously. So I think we need to do more of that. That's The, the strength of the network is in recommendations and going, being able to big up and rep somebody else and going, you know, that this is the best person in this community to help you with whatever it is you're struggling with. And if more people did that, you know, everybody wins. It's like a rising tide. It just lifts all boats. 100% agree. And I'm, I'm part of a few different mastermind groups and all of them have, you know, the private Facebook group thing. Right. And mastermind talks by far is the most supportive community that, that I'm a part of in terms of, you know, the others are, I actually looked yesterday because I noticed this and I was like, I'm going to go see like how, how often, and it's a bigger group, by the way, Southern Mastermind, and people are posting 
once every three days. Right. And it's just to ask a selfish question, typically. It's not to, you know, I love Jason's format where you praise others, you give. And it's such a generous community. Like Todd Herman yep. offered to give tickets to his event in San Diego, right. which is just, you know, it's beautiful. It's amazing, which I'm actually going to take him up on. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so totally agree. What kind of recommendations, and I know we're running short on time, but just kind of the last point here. If you have, if we have somebody sitting at home listening to this or in their car or in the gym and they're starting to realize how important networks are and community and surrounding yourself with people that are doing things that you want to do, what would you recommend for them in terms of kind of first steps in growing their network and reaching out to people that could possibly be a mentor or a friend? Great. So great question. So if you're listening to this, what I want you to focus on is really the a theory of thirds, which is figure out, you know, a third of the people in your life that are kind of at the same level that you're at right now and who have goals to grow beyond the level that, you know, you and them are really at. This is your peer group. These are people who are going to support each other as you grow in your journey. And then you figure out a group of people who are a couple of years ahead of you and have similar goals and have actually achieved them. These are people that you want as potential mentors. Before you go out and try to network with them, figure out what they're being challenged with. Their time is usually the most precious thing that they have in their life. And so nobody wants to have a protege for free. It's like essentially working for them at that point in time. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right? So figure out how you can potentially be of value to them because there's something that they're you know struggling with that they haven't had enough time to pay or to pay enough attention to. But if you come in and say, look, I've got this sort of in-a-box type solution for you. Like what's an actual example that somebody could actually, like for you, for example, if somebody wanted to reach out to you because they're like, oh, Dev's built this company. He's doing awesome. Like if I could only talk to him and get some advice and mentorship from him, it would be valuable. What could somebody do to you to get your attention and really be like, oh, well, this isn't a waste of my time. This person actually is bringing something to the table. Well, so what I would do if, if I wasn't me and I wanted to get in touch with me would be I'd probably shoot an email to me with some level of research and personalization in the company. And then if I don't get back to you for whatever reason, then the next thing that I would do is try to find my direct reports in the company and then invite them out to coffee or for a quick 15-minute Skype call or something and go, what is Dev struggling with right right now in the business? Because it's a very good chance your direct reports know no, yeah. what the obstacles in the business are. Then I'd try to figure out, can I make a connection? Can I be valuable in some way by dedicating time? Can I do something for you that gives you, that moves you part of the way along to the obstacle being solved? So those are three different things you can entirely do. I'm just trying to get, like, like what example? Like, well, I'll give you an example yeah, of somebody that I know that did this and is quite successful today is Charlie Hone, right? Before building up his business and he was in university, I think he, he interned with Tim Ferriss and he also helped out, I believe I might be completely wrong about this, but Noah Kagan. And, you know, these are people who are busy and they're always moving around and they're either writing books or they're at talks and things like that. And so you just kind of figure out like, okay, well, what are you actually struggling with? And maybe one of the biggest things that people struggle with when they're experts is they have lots of ideas in their brain. And they don't have a very good way of being able to take them out, take both the time as well as the format to be able to take those ideas and codify them in some way. Or if they've codified them, it's kind of like sitting in Evernote somewhere as a couple of bullet points and really needs to get expanded out. Those are some of the areas that I would kind of focus on and going, you know, what is that thing that's not really difficult, but you don't have the time for right now? 
and you know remember that these people don't have time to coach you along the way as well so you have to be you know helpful positive and resourceful in being able to get it get it across the line that's probably what i would do no i love it i appreciate you taking the time man i think there's a lot of actionable items for for the audience and i appreciate it dude this is a pleasure awesome until next time see ya all right. So you can find Dev at Dev Basu on Twitter. That's at Dev Basu. And of course, that spelling along with all the links and resources Dev and I discussed, including more information on his company, Powered by Search, can be found at the page created specifically for this episode. That'll be at failon.com slash 020. And next week, we are sitting down with Diana Goodwin. She is the founder of Aquamobile which is an on-demand at-home swim school service, now the largest of its kind in North America. Diana has been featured in Forbes, Success Magazine, The Huffington Post, Tech Vibes, Mashable, amongst many other publications. She's definitely a thought leader in bootstrapping a business to seven figures and will reveal what she believes is the best way to get started in business. Don't miss it. And as I continue to bid off this project, a fail on with the simple goal of getting people to once and for all decide to their core that they are going to fail their way to creating an inspired life. If you could do one thing to support the cause, I'd be really grateful. When you click the subscribe button and leave a rating and quick review, this just simply allows the podcast to be visible to more people. To rate and review the podcast really easy, just go to failon.com slash iTunes or failon.com slash Stitcher. That's all for this episode of the Fail On Podcast. For more resources, show notes, and action items to help you find success in your failures, sign up for our mailing list at failon.com. For more actionable inspiration, we'll catch you next time right here on the Fail On Podcast.